Father, our prayer today is simple. Read our mail. Demonstrate to us that you are our heart knower. We have wild hearts, seemingly untamable. They consistently fly away from you as a bird before a man. Of all hypocrites, help us not to be evangelical hypocrites who sin more safely because grace abounds, who love expository preaching but live unholy, who do not hold fast to the truths we sing. Our hearts are leaky. Your word pumps them full of holy affections for you on Sunday, but it leaks out by Monday. Give us deep gospel hearts that carry home the water of grace. Let us behold the beauty of your holiness and not merely be bystanders, but partake of the beauty ourselves. Show us. The more we know, the less we know. The more we love, the more there is to love. Take us today deeper into theology and deeper into humility. This is our corporate plea. Amen. The book of Revelation should have already ended. I mean, we had the destruction of the world in chapter 6 through 8 with hints of a new world. We had decreation that pointed to a new creation, a recreation. What more is there to say? The seven seals spelled it all out. Well, what we have in our text is the seven trumpets. In the seven trumpets, John backs up and retells the story again from a different perspective. Revelation is not, a, not in strict chronological order. There is repetition. We see the world ending over and over again. Welcome to apocalyptic literature. Revelation does not furnish us with a linear chronology of events. This is not historical narrative. Apocalyptic literature may show the same thing from different perspectives. The theologians call this recapitulation. This is what we have here. The seven seals unfold history. And now the seven trumpets unfold that same history. But from a different perspective. Let me simplify this. I do not think the seven, there are seven seals. And then there are seven trumpets. And then there are seven bowls. I don't think this is walking out a chronological order of judgments. These three series of seven depict the same time period. They each have matching conclusions. We receive them in the, the order, the view that John saw them. In the seven trumpets, God will circle back around and cover everything in, that he covered in the seven seals, but will reveal a little more. What are the seven trumpets? Well, trumpets in the Bible were not merely musical instruments. Their purpose was not simply musical enjoyment. Trumpets were an ancient instrument of announcement. The prophet Joel was told to blow the trumpet in Jerusalem, not because he was musically gifted, but because he was a prophet about to announce judgment. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah all used trumpets to signal a coming judgment. 
In Numbers chapter 10, Israel put in place a signal to indicate that they were going to war with God's enemies. The symbol? Blowing the silver trumpets. Trumpets were often made from a ram's horn. It was used from the earliest times as an alarm for fast approaching attacks. Remember when Joshua walked around the walls of Jericho? He was to march around the city seven days. And on the seventh day, march around seven times. Then the seven priests were to blow their seven trumpets and the walls would fall down and the city would be defeated. Notice the accumulation of seven. The seventh day, walk around seven times. The seven priests blow the seven trumpets. In our opening verse, there are seven angels who are prepared to blow seven trumpets. The seven trumpets in Revelation present God coming in war. They are a warning, an alarm, a signal. God is coming to judge the world. There's going to be more than walls falling down. We will break the text down like this. The return of the plagues, the release of the demons. The return of the plagues, that's Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. The release of the demons, that's Revelation chapter 8, verse 13 through chapter 9, verse 21. Don't worry, before we leave the text today, I will gather up applications for us to carry home. I would like for you to notice as we hear each trumpet blast and see the judgment unfold that we are seeing this series of seven from the perspective of the Exodus plagues. There's unmistakable similarity between the plagues God sent to deliver Israel from Egypt and the plagues God sends to deliver his children from the ultimate Egypt. I call this the return of the plagues. God will replicate the Egyptian plagues 1,500 years later. And they begin in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. When the first angel blew this trumpet, hell and, and fire from heaven came and they were mixed with blood. Well, when this fire, hell and blood hit the earth, it, it burned up one third of the trees, one third of it, all, all the grass, one third of the land. And, and, and there's quite a bit of speculation about what this could be. Some explain this phenomenon by pointing to blood rain. It happens in the Sahara when red dust particles mix with rain. It looks like blood is falling from the sky. Others point out that some of these seven churches were located on a volcanic plain, and this is pointing to volcanic eruptions that would destroy one-third of the earth. Every first reader of this letter would have known about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that happened 15 years ago at the time of the writing. It buried Pompeii. Uh, some interpreters then began to map out what what this leveling of forest will look like. They calculate that one-third of the earth's lush green vegetation will be destroyed, so that means the Amazon, gone. The Congo, gone. Yosemite National Park, gone. Yellowstone, gone. Well, that doesn't seem like a conservationist, does it? Plus, how, how can both 
cold and hot fall at the same time from the sky. And blood? What type of blood? A positive? O positive? What is God doing? What is being predicted? Let's see if we can work toward an actual meaning. This is not the only time we find blood falling from the sky. In Joel 2, he uses the same imagery to describe God's judgment falling from heaven. And, and fire from heaven? This is a common symbol in apocalyptic literature for judgment. That, that's why I'm not about songs that sing for God to send the fire. Send the fire? Send the fire? When God sends the fire, it's judgment. Do you know what you're singing? In Exodus 9, 1,500 years before, God sent the same three components on Egypt as a form of judgment. That was a precursor to this judgment. Whatever the storm is and wherever it will be on earth, I want you to see that it was in heaven before it was on earth. God sends it down. We have witnessed the first trumpet. Now verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Church, allow me to take a little interpretive pause here. Don't try to line up the first seal with the first judgment and the second seal with the second judgment. This is a collage of apocalyptic images. When the second angel blasted the second trumpet, the gr a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And then one-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the sea creatures died. Dolphins, sharks, sea turtles, red snapper. And one-third of the boats, ships, little John boats, war vessels sank. When the first trumpet sounds, God assaults the land. When the second trumpet sounds, God assaults the sea. This will cause seafood to be rationed. The local commerce surrounding these seven local churches depended on the Mediterranean Sea. The loss of this maritime commerce will send them into famine. People in the Middle East lived in dread of famine. This is a replay of the, the first Egyptian plague where God filled the rivers with blood and killed all the fish in Egypt. Now, as I did with the first trumpet, let me do the same here. Let's first talk about the speculation surrounding the second trumpet. Some men, like John MacArthur, say this points to a third of the naval fleets of the world destroyed. He speculates that this is likely an asteroid or meteorite the size of a mountain will hit somewhere in the sea and because all the waters are connected it will cause tsunamis and tidal waves and one-third of the ships in the world's oceans will capsize. I'm just going to leave you with the speculation on these until we reach the end of the first four trumpets. Then I'll unpack what, what we actually know about them and the meaning. Two trumpets are blown. Now verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star? It's Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. When the first trumpet sounds, God assaults the land. 
When the second trumpet sounds, God assaults the sea. When the third trumpet sounds, God assaults the fresh water. The third trumpet trumpeted. And suddenly a star fell from heaven and turned one-third of the rivers and springs and lakes bitter. The fresh water supply is smitten. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word wormwood is used. The star is named, named wormwood for the effect it had on the water. Now, wormwood was, was actually something in the first century. It, it, was an, it was an herb used medicinally to kill intestinal worms. Uh, theologian Un states that wormwood was so potent that one ounce could be detected in 524 gallons of water. Whatever this poison was, it, was con it contaminated the freshwater sources killing people. I mean, I mean you know, the, even today, a lack of clean water leads to disease and death. I was reading this and just stopped and, and realized that every drink of cool, clean water is mercy. This is a replay of Exodus 7. God polluted the Egyptian water sources. Now let's learn of some of the speculation surrounding the third trumpet. <laughs> some have said this is chemical warfare. You know, is chemical warfare in the Bible? Yep, right there, that verse. Others say we produce this judgment ourselves, that this is acid rain from all the industrial pollution. Yeah, I kid you not. People publish these books. <laughs> but this judgment here is sent from heaven, not a manufacturing plant or another country. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that the third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. When the first trumpet sounds, God assaults the land. When the second trumpet sounds, God assaults the sea. When the third trumpet sounds, God assaults the fresh water. When the fourth trumpet sounds, God assaults the lights of the sky. The sun was struck. Moon was struck. Stars were struck. Who struck? These are all divine passives. God struck. In a culture that doesn't know anything about electricity, this would have been extremely fear-inducing. Now let's take a step back. Because we have so many students of the word in our church, as we walk through these first four trumpets, you are likely asking a few questions. One, I noticed something is out of order. What's up with that? I noticed something is out of operation. What's going on with that? I noticed something is out of step with the Egyptian plagues. Can you explain that? Well, let's take them one at a time. I noticed something is out of order. In chapter 6, it says the stars were thrown down and destroyed. Gone. Here in chapter 8, it says they're still shining. Which is it? The sun and the moon were destroyed in chapter 6. How is it that a third is blotted out here when the sun is gone? And that's a really good catch. Sometimes what we read in Revelation is out of order because it's not what happens next, but what John sees next. This is not a tight chronology of linear events. This is simply another evidence that these seals and trumpets are not to be viewed chronologically. This is recapitulation, telling the same story from a different perspective. 
The seven seals gave us the destruction of the world from one perspective. The seven trumpets give us the destruction of the world from another perspective. Revelation does not contradict itself. It repeats itself. I noticed something was out of order. Secondly, I noticed something is out of operation. As we went through the first four trumpets, you might have been like, wait, that can't happen. The world can't operate like that. God set normal rhythms of operation, and if it changes even in the slightest, the whole world will break apart. So explain to me why one of the judgments says the sun will stop shining for one-third of the day or that the sun will, will lose one-third of its power. If the sun lost one-third of its power, the earth would freeze solid. In addition, I've read some of these commentaries with flat-footed interpreters that say, it says a star is falling from heaven, so a star fell from heaven and it will hit the earth. That's what will happen. We always interpret Revelation literally. But stars are bigger than our planet. And if one hit us, it would smatter us to smithereens. It wouldn't kill one-third of us, but all-thirds. I'm always taking you back to the first sermon in the series where I said apocalyptic is a genre that is not familiar to us. But it was very familiar to the original readers. It may be an alien genre to you, but it was Monday for them. Revelation belongs to a genre of literature that was not uncommon to Christians or non-Christians in the first and second century. It was literature with heavy symbolism, creatures, numbers, horns, historical events represented in the form of natural phenomenons like earthquakes or a flood. Colors and numbers have meaning. Apocalyptic literature had symbolic imagery. Apocalyptic literature is symbolic writing designed to unmask in fact, the phrase in the first verse of the book, I know you have that memorized. That was, I don't know how long ago, a couple of years. Uh, in the first verse of the book, Jesus made the revelation known by sending his angel to John. Those words made it known in, in verse one is used six times in the Bible and it means communicated by symbols. Made known through symbols, images. This book aims at the imagination. Psalms aim at the heart. Revelation aims at the imagination. D.A. Carson said the single greatest failure among modern scholarship is the neglect of teaching genres. We are teaching Proverbs as if they are promises and Psalms as though they are history and reading Revelation like we read Romans. Revelation is not a historical account like Acts or 1 Samuel. Let me say it like this. Apocalyptic is for romantics, not engineers. Scientific precision is not the burden of apocalyptic. It's poetic language to illustrate a bigger truth so you have things that do not fit God's normal laws of operation. John is writing pictures, not writing scientific prose. You engineers need to become more romantic. It's a visionary genre. Again, I repeat myself, apocalyptic literature is symbolic writing designed to unmask. What is, it, what is it unmasking? God's judgment. Darkness, which was the whole point of the sun being blotted out. Darkness speaks of divine punishment. God says, you long for darkness? I'll give you darkness. Darkness over and over in the Old Testament is used as a symbol of God's judgment. 
Where else did darkness happen? It happened on the cross where the judgment for the Christian was poured out on Christ. The point is this. It's not full darkness. It's partial darkness. Partial darkness anticipates everlasting darkness. And the third, I noticed something is out of step with the Egyptian plagues. You say this is a replay of the Egyptian plagues, but I, I noticed something that's out of step. The Egyptian plagues were all on were, were on all the people or all the land or all the rivers or, or all the Egyptian homes. But here the plagues are just on one-third of the people, one-third of the land, one-third of the ocean and freshwater sources, one-third of the people. What's up with that? I'll pull out the one-third significance later. But the overall purpose of the Egyptian plagues and the future plagues, John writes about 1,500 years later, the purpose is the exact same. I think it was Peterson who pointed out that the Exodus plagues were not punitive, but purgative. Sent not simply to make Pharaoh miserable, but to get him to change his mind to repent. The purpose of the Revelation plagues is to bring people to repentance. To leave their idolatry and follow the one true God. The return of the plagues. God recapitulates here the Egyptian plagues. Now we enter the release of the demons. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice and it flew directly overhead. Some of you are like, yes, the eagle, America. <laughs> Stop that. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Th this eagle is a bird of prey. They, they swoop and devour. This eagle speaks. This eagle says the earth is a terrible place to live for humans. He says this by saying, whoa, 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 thrice repeated. You could paraphrase it like this. The eagle, this, this earthly beast, flew over the land saying, doom, doom, doom. This is a direct contrast to what the heavenly beasts are saying around the throne. Holy, holy holy. Kyle, do you really believe there will be a talking eagle? <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. There are ridiculous questions regarding Revelation that make us miss the point of the text. I don't want to be preoccupied with questions that John isn't concerned about. Will an eagle actually fly over earth and speak? This is not the point of the text. The point of the text is doom is coming and all creatures are testifying of it. Oh, Kyle, I see that now. Thank you. Could I ask you one more question? Sure. Do you think the eagle will talk? <laughs> God made a donkey talk. He can make an eagle talk. But this is simply meant to unmask something that is coming. 
Verse 13 is going to introduce the final three trumpets. John is still calling them trumpets, but he's adding another name to them as well. Woes. The, the first four trumpets fell on Christians and non-Christians. The lost and the saved, the sealed and the unsealed. These next three trumpets or woes will fall only on the non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian, these woes are directed at you. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That is a technical term in Revelation that could be translated the earth dwellers. It's used 12 times in the book. It's not saying these next three trumpets are just for those who live on earth and not for those who live on Saturn. It's not differentiating between the planets. It's not like this applies to those on earth but not those on Venus. No. This technical term always speaks of non-Christians. The fifth trumpet, the first woe, begins in verse 1 of chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, my Revelation scholars, I want you to take note. Chapter 8, verse 10, a great star fell from heaven. Chapter 8, verse 10, a great star fell from heaven. Chapter 9, verse 1, a star fell from heaven. Neither one seems to be an actual star. Welcome to apocalyptic literature. <laughs> what is the star? Better yet, who is the star? The star came from heaven and he, masculine pronoun, was given a key. Kevin DeYoung Stephen Davy and most of the ancients believe it was Satan. Satan fell from heaven and was given a key to the bottomless pit where the demons were kept. G.K. Bill agrees but says it, it could also be a fallen angel, not necessarily Satan. Uh, where did the angel receive the key? You remember, friend, back in chapter 1 that Jesus revealed himself as the one who holds the keys that open and lock death's door and open and lock hell's gates. Would a fallen angel be entrusted with the key to his own prison? Unlikely. Would Satan be granted the key, temporary delegated power to control hell and its demons? Maybe. But, but in the end, Satan would be locked up with this same key, so there's lots of questions. It is my position along with the Baptist theologian Tom Schreiner and noted Greek scholar Robert Mounts, that this is a good angel. I do not think Satan would hold the keys to the bottomless pit for even a time. Now, I will concede I am in the minority in this position. Maybe 70-30 uh, among scholars. 70% think it's Satan and 30% think it's a good angel. So I'm in the minority. Just to ease your mind, I am in the majority of scholars in how to interpret the entire book of Revelation. Uh, J. Mack, for instance, some of you are familiar with, would be in the minority of that group. Does Jesus give the key to Satan or a good angel? Well, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, 
but I do work for a nonprofit. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's a good angel. With scholars so divided, it's really unwise to be dogmatic. Either one doesn't change the meaning of the text. Verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. <laughs> the shaft refers to a pit. Bottomless refers to man's inability to fathom its depth. Some of the ancients viewed certain caves and crevices in the earth as openings to hell. They even wrote about it. I read some two weeks ago of how, how flying birds dropped to their death while in mid-flight because they suffocated from the gases rising from one of these crevices. The location of hell is, is, greatly, is a hotly debated topic. Some think it's the center of the earth because of how hot it is there. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard preachers tell crazy stories about people drilling in the ground in Russia and hearing the sounds of hell, people crying and gnashing of teeth. You can take about 10 steps over in that building and hear all of that. <laughs> Early on in my Christianity, I was not given good theology. It's under a lot of preaching like this. You don't need to worry about where the pit is. You just need to know God will put people there. And you need to make sure you're not one of them. Verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Now, is God unleashing a literal locust plague like he did on Egypt? Is this a literal locust plague like what was unleashed in Joel's day? The prophet Joel and everyone in Israel could do nothing but watch as these three-inch long creatures that looked like heavily armed bulletproof grasshoppers flew down and attacked anything green. They even ate the bark off the trees leaving behind a wasteland that looked like a nuclear holocaust. Before them is a garden and behind them is a desert. They are desert makers. Locust plagues still happen in certain places in Africa and Asia today. Is that what we have here? I don't think so. I think this is symbolic. And now I'm going to prove that from verse 4, verse 5. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. The plague is not agricultural, but spiritual. This is a spiritual locust plague, and it's not really locust is what I'm saying. Verse 4. They, that's the locust, were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These locusts are told not to harm the green grass. <laughs> Remember, the green grass was just burnt up in chapter 8, verse 7. Those who say the seals and the trumpets are linear judgments contest that the grass had opportunity to grow back between the first trumpet and the fifth trumpet. <laughs> that, that made me laugh when I read it. They're trying to harmonize it. Do not harm the grass. Well, that's what locusts do. Telling a locust not to harm the grass is like telling a bird, do not fly. Like telling a fish, do not swim. Like telling a turtle, do not turtle. <laughs> they are told to attack anyone who doesn't have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is talking about the Christians. 
You remember God has sealed his people through the tribulation. They will persevere. They will last. They will make it. You non-Christians may be looking at your neighbor and seeing if, if she has a mark on her forehead. You can't see it. What is it? Is it, a, is it a microchip? It's not an actual mark. It's symbolism to show that God protects and marks his sheep. It's not an outward mark. It's an inward mark. It's a soul mark. Locusts attack. Now, locusts aren't pit bulls. They aren't brown bears or sharks. They don't attack. They fly and gorge themselves. But these locusts are given a stinger like a scorpion. They are to sting everyone who doesn't have the seal of God. You can't see the seal. But the locusts see it. You know, you know scorpions. Part of the lobster family, but they live on land. They have eight legs and a, a tail that curves up. Their sting always inflicts pain, but rarely leads to death. They deliver poison through the stinger. Now, some of you non-Christians just rolled up in here for the first time and you're looking under your chair right now for scorpions. I need you to just put your feet down, sit down and relax. I'm going to show you what this symbol points to in a minute. Verse 5. They, the locusts, were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Many scholars contest the lifespan of a desert locust is five months, hence the reference here to five months. A real locust plague turns a forest into a desert in a couple days. No need to stay five months. But these locusts stay around for five months. And they're given instructions to torture non-Christian men and women for five months. But they're still restricted by God. They can torture but not kill. Is this physical pain? Is this psychological misery? Whatever the torture is, it's worse than death. Because, verse 6, And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. They will look for ways to kill themselves. One, one man said, who holds to a different view of Revelation than I do, one man said, they will jump off buildings but bounce off concrete. They will try to drown themselves but they will only float. <laughs> that, of course, is misreading the genre. Humanity will long to die, but death will run from them. Such torment of mind and soul, they will wish they could die. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like, we've seen this a lot, crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. These locusts are pictured like an army scaling the walls. Notice this is a visionary experience and he's attempting to relate it by saying the word like with things that the original readers would be familiar with. They knew horses. They knew crowns of gold. They knew human faces and women's hair. They knew lion's teeth. And common war armor, breastplates. They knew, they knew the noise of chariots rushing to battle. 
Many ancient sources thought the locust had, head, had a head like a horse. In fact, locust in German means hay horse. Not hay like hay, but hay what you eat. Hay horse. In Italian, it means little horse. And an old Arabian proverb said, locusts have head like a horse, breast like a lion, feet like camel, body like a serpent, and, and antenna like the hair of a maiden. John, John's cross-fertilizing similes. He's combining locusts and scorpions and soldiers and horses. His description moves from head to tail like a good entomologist, but he mixes species. Verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. Here's another reason we should not look at this as a literal locust plague. Locusts don't have a king. But these locusts do. Proverbs even tells us that. Locusts have no king. But these locusts have a king. Who is their king? Abaddon. Apollyon. These names both mean destroyer. Same meaning in two languages. Same person in two testaments. Their leader is Satan himself. I view this as different than the good angel who let the locusts out. I, I see it like this. The good angel lets the locusts out and they fly out amidst the smoke from the furnace and they go straight to their leader, Satan himself. It's time to stop beating around the bush, Kyle. Get it out. Who are the locusts? They are demons. The locusts represent a demonic army. Even those who ignore the genre and force literal interpretation are themselves forced to acknowledge that this is not a literal locust plague. This is a demonic plague. These locusts are not in the animal kingdom but in the demonic kingdom. The demonic tormentors target not Earth's vegetation, but Earth's population. Specifically, non-Christians. Non-Christians, this demonic army will afflict you. Not us. We have the seal of God on our foreheads. This fifth trumpet and first woe is just for you. It's some kind of demonic torture, whether it be physical or psychological or both. It's demons from the abyss on your front porch. Only for five months though, right? <laughs> I think the five months spoke to the locust lifespan. How long does a demon live? What is the lifespan of a demon? They don't die. They are fallen angels. This torment starts on earth, but it will last their entire lifespan, forever. You say, you're just trying to scare me. I'm trying to open your eyes. This isn't scare tactics. I'm not CNN or Fox News. I'm a preacher of the gospel. This is facts. I'm not here to bring opinions. Christians, side note here. But this is another evidence that you can't be possessed by demons. So if you come from a Pentecostal background, stop with that cast out demons of depression and demons of loneliness nonsense. Make sure your system of theology comes from the Bible. The fifth trumpet, that was the first woe. It is past. We finished it.
The sixth trumpet, that is the second woe. Let's cover it. By the way, church, here's a little surprise for you. We're not covering the seventh trumpet today. <laughs> that comes next week. That's my early Christmas present to you. <laughs> FFC, two weeks ago, the sixth seal represented the end of the world. Remember that? Today, the sixth trumpet does not. We're still dealing with fractions of the world. One third, not the whole world. It's not a one-to-one -one recapitulation of the seals and trumps. In fact, I think all these trumpets are before the sixth seal. The, the fifth trumpet speaks of the suffering of non-Christians. The sixth trumpet speaks of the death of non-Christians. Non-Christians, just like the last trumpet, this is just for you. Verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound. Now let's pause here. The fact that they are bound shows that they're not good angels. The sixth angel who had the trumpet released the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. We have demons bound in a pit, an abyss, now we have demons bound in a river, Euphrates. This river still flows today. Were there four demons trapped in it at one time? We need to see the symbolism here. The Euphrates River held historical and contemporary meaning to the first readers. The original readers knew the Euphrates River as a place where trouble comes from. They knew it was the ancient boundary between Israel and her ancient captors. They would say, Egypt came across the Euphrates. Babylon came across the Euphrates. It had historical meaning. To the first century mindset, this river was a source of oppression and a place of exile. But it also had contemporary meaning to them. The Parthians were just across the river and Rome couldn't subdue, subdue them. Rome took land north, took land south, took land west, but couldn't take it east because the Parthians were there. One historian wrote, and I quote, Rome lived with the threat of Parthians crossing. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. They were released according to God's timetable and according to God's agenda. Verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Let's do the math. Let's pull out the, I just did it for you. It's 200 million. That's what the commentator said. I didn't do it on a calculator, but I'm just trusting them. That's 200 million in this demonic cavalry. I'm not going to spend time on all the crazy things crazy preachers have come up with from this verse. But let me just say this. This is not predicting red China the only nation that could muster this many troops. This number is speaking of demons. And it's the same with John's other numbers. It's incalculable. It's meant to show the number is beyond human calculation. It's an incomprehensible demonic horde. It defies all powers of measurement. Verse 17, 
And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. These are fire-breathing steeds. And they have rancid breath, bad breath, smelling like sulfur. This hideous combination is not foreign to the book of Revelation. John's not describing modern weaponry or depicting literal horses. It does not symbolize tanks or cannons or battleships or stealth bombers or any other ridiculous thing you've heard from this text. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind will be killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Those three things, fire, smoke, sulfur. The only other place these three things are found in Scripture is Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened in those cities? The judgment of God rained down on them because of their wickedness. Verse 19. For the power of the, horse, for the, power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, there were some ancient false gods that looked similar to this in appearance. I'm not going to pull all of that out. The, the horses' tails are not literal snakes because the horses are not literal horses. They are a supernatural demonic force. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorcerers or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So one-third of the earth dwellers, the non-Christians, are killed. And the ones who were not, the other two-thirds, despite all these plagues, still refuse to repent. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt did not repent, the plagues came and went, and they refused to genuinely repent. They've rejected all offers of grace and mercy. They've continued their murderous occult and thieving ways. They continue in unbridled, unrepentant sin because once the heart is set on its hostility toward God, not even the scourge of death will lead people to repentance. It's interesting. Each Egyptian plague was against a certain Egyptian god, a god they worshipped. God hated idolatry, so he sent plagues. What did these people in the text do? Idolatry. Old forms and new forms. Sex, theft, murders. Now, my Revelation scholars, if you have stayed with me this far in the journey through the return of the plagues and through the release of the demons. You've put in the hard work of a student of scripture. You've done the tiring work of exegesis. Now you, you get to receive the rewards, the gems, the treasures from your study. You've unearthed the gold and now it's time to clean and polish and admire it. And we will do that in the form of three applications. Application number one. Don't drown out the voice of this text by arguing your particular eschatological position. 
Don't drown out the voice of this text by arguing your particular eschatological position. Johnny Mack and R.C. Sproul held different eschatological positions. Yet they had a fruitful friendship. They both realized this was not a first-tier issue. We need to stop having friendship divorces over differing views on eschatology. You're just showing your spiritual immaturity. I hold to a different stance than both of these men. Mine's the only one that's right. <laughs> Don't say things like that, okay? Don't do that. See, I, I didn't have that in the manuscript. I don't write them off because they hold different views. They're evangelical solid views, not heretical views. You can be a church member in good standing and hold to one of their views of eschatology. I'm not denying, nor have I ever denied, that in some minutiae places in Revelation, it is difficult or even impossible to identify the sources of John's imagery. We may not agree on all the small, precise details but there are some things that are clear beyond all question. They are very plain. They are very obvious. They are very undeniable. And the first is this. All these judgments originate with God. How they are executed may be beyond our intelligence. I acknowledge that. But the source is the same. We get so concerned and infatuated with little details and draw a line in the sand when it comes to meteors and missiles and acid rain. We get so concerned about the how and the when that we neglect the who and the why. And that, beloved, is the great failure in our eschatological conversations. Let's be a church that's spiritually mature. Application number two. You have a window of opportunity to repent and believe. Non-Christian, I told you something earlier that was wrong. <laughs> I said you need to sit down and, and, and just relax. You shouldn't be relaxed. You should be itching to run to Jesus for salvation. You should be antsy to bank your eternity on the claims of this Christ. You should be eager to break all the idols that are keeping you from turning from your sin. Friend, there is something worse than a scorpion under your seat. The reality is worse than the symbol. The half locust, half scorpions could sting for five months. Which is interesting, which is interesting because that's how long the flood lasted. Well, how long Noah was on the ark escaping the judgment of God? The judgment coming is worse than a flood and worse than a scorpion sting. The big message of the trumpets, the big message of the trumpets is this. You still have time to repent. It's only one third pointing to the fact that you still have opportunity. Saying a third means it's a partial judgment. These are limited disasters. It's a bitter foretaste. Seal judgments, remember those? The seven seal judgments, they were against a quarter of the world. The seven trumpet judgments are against a third of the world. 
eventually there will be no fractions. Don't remain in defiant unbelief. Embrace this Christ. The locusts, the, the hail, fire, and, and blood falling from heaven, the great mountain thrown into the sea, one-third of the ships sinking, fresh water polluted, lights of heaven darkening, an eagle crying out, doom, 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 all the demonic forces coming like locusts or fire-breathing steeds. You must take this picture as a whole. It's an exceeding graphic way of saying God is coming in judgment. The point of the passage is that the judgment of the Lord is awful. So what will it take to bring you to repentance? I know what it took for me. I'm grateful that God dropped it from heaven. Application number three. God is sovereign over the final day and over every day that will lead up to it. God is sovereign over the final day and over every day that will lead up to it. <laughs> what about the last days? He, he's sovereign over the last days. All of them. If there's one thing clear from this text, it's this. God will take evil in his hand and use it as a rod. God uses evil to judge evil. Satan, his demons, Satan and his demons are confined behind the bars of God's sovereignty. How sovereign is the sovereignty of God? All sovereign. He's not a British monarchy that reigns but does not rule. Who passed out the seven trumpets to the seven angels? God did. I, I need practical, Kyle. I need practical, 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 practical. Okay, here. When you freak out over little stuff, it's a check engine light to what's going on in your soul. You don't think God is really sovereign over the final days or all the days that lead up to it. Let's stand together. Father, your plan and your ways are beautifully put on display in this text. Thank you for choosing to expose us to it. We will not leave untouched or unmoved. We have been helped. We have been taught. We have been encouraged. <laughs>